Chapter Thirteen of England, Canada, and the Great War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. England, Canada, and the Great War by Louis Georges Desjardins. Chapter Thirteen: British and German Aspirations Compared. In an attempt to justify his opposition to the Canadian armed support of the Allies' cause, Mr. Bourassa repeatedly asserted that Great Britain was as much as Germany aspiring to rule the whole world he pretends that there is no difference between anglo-saxonism and germanism how unjust and dangerous is such a doctrine is evident to any fair-minded man it was no doubt calculated to prejudice the french canadians against great britain by telling them that the sacrifices they were called upon to make were imposed upon them only to favour the british determination to reach the goal of her ambition universal domination I strongly repudiated such assertions and vindicated England's course and policy. To accuse Great Britain to aspire to universal domination is a most unwarranted charge, contradicted by the whole history of the last century during which she was the most determined supporter of peace. Though one of the great powers of the world, England never undertook to organize a large standing army. How could she aspire to the world's domination without a complete military organization comprising many millions of men is what I am unable to understand. Mr. Bourassa's argument to prove his assertion is based on the efforts of England to maintain and develop her naval forces so as to guarantee her supremacy on the high seas of the world. How he failed to realize that Great Britain, on account of her insular position close to the European continent, is by nature itself bound, of sheer necessity, to protect herself by the strength of her military naval power is beyond comprehension supremacy on the seas is for the mother country a mere question of national existence to be or not to be but supremacy on the seas cannot and never will permit england to attain anything like universal domination and why for the obvious reason that great britain is not and never can become a continental power in the exact sense of the word i explained conclusively i believe that the case would be very different if germany succeeded in her efforts to supplant england's supremacy on the seas when the berlin government undertook to build a huge military fleet germany was the greatest continental military power what were her expectations when she adopted that threatening naval policy the berlin authorities were very confident that when they would decide to bring on the great war for which they had been strenuously preparing for half a century they would in a few months have continental Europe at their feet and under their sway. Triumphant over Europe, they would have at once dominated Asia and a great part of Africa. The next surest way for the German Empire to reach universal domination was to break England's power on the seas. What is impossible for England to accomplish on account of her insular position, Germany, being a continental empire, could achieve if she became mistress of the seas. The present war is the proof evident that the mighty power of England on the seas has been the salvation of her national existence, and almost equally that of France and Italy. It kept the oceans open for the trade of all the allied and neutral nations. He is willingly blind intellectually, the man who does not see that deprived of the matchless protection of her naval forces, Great Britain could be starved and subdued in a few months by an enemy ruling the waves against her. Is it possible to suppose that any man aspiring to help moulding the public opinion of his countrymen ignores that with the relatively small extent of the territory it can devote to agricultural production, Great Britain can never feed her actual population of over forty-five millions, most likely to reach sixty millions in the not very distant future? 
consequently how unjust how extravagant is it to accuse england of any aspiration to dominate the world by means of the sacrifices she is absolutely bound to make for the only sake of her self-defence her self-protection if he does not know i will no doubt cordially oblige the nationalist leader by informing him that great britain usually importing food products to the amount of seven to eight hundred millions of dollars for many years past required as much as a billion dollars worth of them in the war year of nineteen fifteen it is so easy to foresee that the continual increase of the population of the united kingdom by the new large developments which will surely follow the war in all industrial commercial and financial pursuits will cause a relative increase in the importations of food products likely to reach and even exceed before long an average total annual value of a billion and a quarter dollars none of the european continental powers has the same imperious reasons as england to take the proper means to guarantee her control of the seas how is it then that germany is the only power to object to england's policy if it is not for the ultimate object to attain universal domination by the overthrow of great britain's ascendancy on the wide oceans which would permit her to realize her long-cherished aim by the combined powerful effort of her gigantic military forces both on land and sea with regard to england's naval supremacy the nationalist leader is also committed to other opinions which i strongly contradicted he entirely forgets that beyond the sea-coast limits well defined by international law no sovereign rights can be claimed on the high seas the navigation of the ocean is free to all nations by nature itself has any government ever entertained the foolish idea that the broad atlantic could for instance be divided into so many parts as the european asiatic or american continents over which several states could exercise sovereign powers no chinese wall can be built on the seas my own view of the case, which I believe to be the correct one, is that England's naval supremacy means nothing more nor less than the police of the seas, and the protection of the flags of all the nations navigating them, besides being, of course and necessarily, the guarantee of her national existence. Blind also, intellectually, is the British subject not sufficiently inspired by the true sense of the duties of loyalty, who does not understand that once Great Britain's maritime power would be crushed, and the United Kingdom either conquered or obliged to a humiliating peace which would ruin all her future prospects, the colonial empire would equally be at the mercy of the victorious enemy of the mother country. With the most earnest conviction, I have tried, to the best of my ability, to persuade my French-Canadian compatriots of the inevitable dangers ahead if the false views which were so persistingly impressed upon their minds were ever to prevail, and the aim they undoubtedly favour to be realised another argument widely used by our nationalist school to influence the opinion of the french canadians against canada's participation in the war was that great britain herself was not doing what she ought to win the victory i have personally heard this false objection repeated by many unconsciously of course who were influenced in so saying by the nationalist press no more unfair charge could have been made against england I could not help being indignant at reading it, knowing as I did, by daily acquired information, what an immense effort the United Kingdom had been making, from the very beginning of the hostilities, to play its powerful part in the great war into which it had nobly decided to enter, to avenge its honour, to defend the empire and the whole world against German barbarous militarism. I have already commented on the immense service guaranteed to the Allied nations by the British fleet. To illustrate the wonderful and admirable military effort of Great Britain, I will quote some very important figures from the most interesting report of the British War Cabinet for the year 1917, presented to Parliament by command of His Majesty. Under the title Construction and Supply, the report says, quote, 
during the past year the naval service has undergone continual expansion in order to enable it to meet every demand made upon it not only in the seas surrounding these islands but in the mediterranean the persian gulf the red sea the arctic ocean the pacific and the atlantic where it has cooperated with the naval forces of the allies the displacement tonnage of the royal navy in nineteen fourteen was two million four hundred thousand tons to-day it has increased by seventy five per cent making a total of four million two hundred thousand tons the ships and vessels of all kinds employed in the naval service in september nineteen fourteen after the whole of the mobilization had been completed had a tonnage of just over four million now the figure is well over six million transports fleet attendants and overseas oilers and similar auxiliary vessels at the outbreak of war numbered twenty-three the admiralty to-day control nearly seven hundred such craft the strength of the personnel which was one hundred forty five thousand has been increased to four hundred and twenty thousand from these brief particulars regarding the ships and their manning an estimate can be formed of the expansions that have been made in the auxiliary services such as guns torpedoes munitions and stores of all kinds anti-submarine apparatus mines etc and some ideas gained of the demands that have been made upon the great army of workers on shore the men in the royal dockyards and arsenals in the shipyards the engine shops and the factories without whose help the fleet could not be maintained as a fighting force as regards warship and auxiliary ship construction the output during the last twelve months has been between three and four times the average annual output for the few years preceding the war the admiralty now control all the dry docks in the country two hundred and fifty merchant ships are being repaired each week either in dry dock or afloat since the beginning of the war thirty one thousand four hundred and seventy british war vessels have been placed in dock or on the slips as many as two hundred and twenty five being repaired in one week these figures do not include repair work carried out to the vessels of our allies the transport service is of the highest importance in carrying on the war what has been the achievement of england on that score under the title transportation the war cabinet report proves its immensity as follows quote, the record of what has been done by the transport services for the armies of the allies shows a stupendous amount of work accomplished which constitutes one of the brilliant achievements of the war there had been transported overseas up till the end of august nineteen seventeen the last date for which complete statistics are available some thirteen million human beings combatants, wounded, medical personnel, refugees, prisoners, etc., two million horses and mules, half a million vehicles, twenty-five million tons of explosive and supplies for the armies, fifty-one million tons of coal and oil fuel, for the use of our fleets, our armies, and to meet the needs of our allies. The operations of the seas are on such a large scale that it is difficult to realize all that is involved in sea transportation. For example, over seven thousand personnel are transported, and more than thirty thousand tons of stores and supplies have to be imported daily into france for the maintenance of our own army about five hundred and sixty seven steamers of approximately one and three quarter million tons are continually employed in the service of carrying troops and stores to the armies in france and to the forces in various theatres of war in the east we all know that the berlin government expected that the submarine campaign would result in an early final victory for the central empires Herr von Bethmann-Holweg, then the imperial chancellor, said, quote, The blockade must succeed within a limited number of weeks, within which America cannot effectively participate in the operations. End quote. How he was mistaken and extravagant were his expectations, events have proved. 
this sentence is also proof evident that he realized how effective the united states effort would become if the submarine campaign did not succeed within a few weeks the iniquitous submarine campaign reopened early in the year nineteen seventeen quote, added materially to the responsibilities of the navy to meet this new and serious menace drastic steps had to be taken to supplement those adopted in the previous december and january end quote. the report adds quote, a large number of new destroyers have been built and at the same time auxiliary patrol services have been expanded enormously so as to deal with the nefarious submarine and mine-laying methods of the enemy before the outbreak of the war there were under twenty vessels employed as minesweepers and on auxiliary patrol duties Today, the number of craft used for these purposes at home and abroad is about 3,400 and is constantly increasing. A new feature of the means adopted for the protection of trade against submarines has been a return to the convoy system as practiced in bygone wars. It has been markedly effective in reducing the losses. During the last few months, over 90% of all vessels sailing in all the Atlantic trades were convoyed. The Royal Naval Air Service at the outbreak of war possessed a personnel of under 800. At the present moment the numbers approach 46,000, and are continually increasing. Mention must also be made of the great value of the air services in combating the submarine menace round our coasts. Illustrating their extent, it may be stated that in one week the aircraft patrol round the British coasts alone flies 30,000 miles. The general result of the German attack, therefore, though serious enough, is far from unprecedented in the two years after trafalgar when our command of the sea was unquestioned we still lost one thousand forty five merchant ships by capture and in the whole period from seventeen ninety four to eighteen seventy five we lost over ten thousand merchant ships nor should we lose sight of the very heavy losses sustained by the enemy in the present war at the commencement of the hostilities germany had nine hundred and fifteen merchant ships abroad of which only one hundred and fifty eight got home safely the remainder within a few days were cleared from the oceans either captured or driven to shelter in neutral ports in the aggregate the german mercantile marine consisted of over five million tons of shipping at the present time nearly half of this has been sunk or captured by ourselves or our allies while the bulk of the rest is lying useless in harbour let me now refer to the military effort of great britain under the title quote, strength of the army etc the War Cabinet Report gives the following most inspiring figures. Quote, the effort which the British nations have made under the one item of quote, provision of men for the armed forces of the Crown end quote, amounts to not less than 7,500,000 men, and of these 60.4% have been contributed by England, 8.3% by Scotland, 3.7% by Wales, 2.3% by Ireland, 1.2% by the Dominions and the Colonies, while the remainder, 13.3%, composed of native fighting troops, labor corps, carriers, etc., represent the splendid contribution made by India and our various African and other dependencies. Royal Artillery The personnel of the Royal Artillery increased 17.6% between August 1916 and August 1917. In the first nine months of 1917, the supply of modern anti-aircraft guns in the field increased 44%, that of field guns 17%, of field howitzers 26%, of heavy guns 40%, of medium howitzers 104%, of heavy howitzers 16%, and of heavy guns on railway mountings 100%. These last have an increased range of about 35%. We have also supplied large numbers of heavy guns and trench mortars to our allies in different theatres of war. The medical service has continued to expand with the growth of the army, 
and its strength is now largely in excess of our whole original expeditionary force. More than 17,000 women are employed as nurses, and over 28,000 others are engaged in military hospitals on various forms of work. Hospitals in the United Kingdom now number more than 2,000. The health of the troops in the United Kingdom is actually better than the peace rate. The same is the case in France, excluding admissions to hospital by reason of wounds. End quote. The above-quoted figures prove that out of a total of 7,500,000 men for the armed forces of the British Crown, Great Britain, the United Kingdom, had contributed, at the end of last year, 5,625,000, out of which number the shore of England and Wales amounted to 4,800,000. The British colonial empire's contribution had been 1,875,000. At the date of the current year, August 1918, I am writing... I can safely calculate that the number of men for the armed forces of the British Crown, using the words of the official report above quoted, has reached at least the grand and magnificent total of eight million. The percentage of respective contributions of the United Kingdom and the Colonial Empire no doubt remaining the same, the relative number of each of them is, for the United Kingdom six million, for the colonies two million. I consider the War Cabinet Report of 1917 so interesting, so encouraging, that my readers will, I am confident, kindly bear with me in a few more very important quotations, the full report itself having had only a very limited circulation in Canada. Transport In addition to the prodigious naval effort of England, both military and mercantile, previously illustrated, Great Britain has most powerfully contributed to the fighting operations on land by an immense improvement in transportation facilities by railway construction in all British theatres of war. The report says, quote, In all these theatres railways have come to play a more and more important part. In France a vast light railway system has been created, involving the supply during the present year of approximately 1,700 miles of track and the whole of the equipment. Exclusive of these light railway systems, the total amount of permanent railway track supplied complete to all theatres of war is about 3,600 miles. In Egypt, the railway crossing the desert from the Suez Canal has now reached and passed Gaza. In Mesopotamia, the rapid and successful movements of our troops have only been made possible by the construction of a whole series of lines since the beginning of 1917. The development of road-building has been on a similar scale and the shipments of material, equipment, and stores for these two purposes during the last nine months have averaged 200,000 tons a month. Much labor has also been spent in the organization of an overland line of communications through France and Italy to the Mediterranean in order to save shipping. This line was opened for personnel traffic in June 1917 and for goods traffic early in August. In France, the conveyance of supplies of all kinds to our armies along the French rivers and canals is performed by a large fleet of tugs, barges, and self-propelled barges. The fleet thus employed in France consists of over 700 vessels, and the tonnage carried by it averages over 50,000 tons per week. The Air Service In a recital indicating generally what steps have been taken in matters of administration and control, the report says, quote, From the point of view of defense, the new arm presented problems pregnant with at least equal importance. The proud and ancient inviolability of these islands was being challenged in a new and startling fashion, and the seriousness of the problem was added to by the fact that the geographical position of the capital of the empire rendered it particularly inviting to attack from the air. 
Respecting the supply of aircraft, the report says that, quote, in endeavouring to describe the measures taken to meet the aircraft needs of the Navy and Army, the writer is at once confronted by the fact that the information desired by the country is precisely the information desired by the enemy. What the country wants to know is what has been the expansion in our air services, whether we have met and are meeting all the demands of the Navy and of the Army, both for replacement of obsolete machines by the most modern types and for the increase of our fighting strength in the air. What proportion of the national resources in men, material and factories is being devoted to aviation? What the expansion is likely to be in the future? These are precisely the facts which we should like to know with regard to the German air service, and for that reason it would be inadmissible for us to supply Germany with corresponding information about ourselves by publishing a statement on the subject. It can be said that the expansion of our air services is keeping pace generally with the growing needs of the Navy and the Army. End quote. In Chapter 8, under the heading, quote, The Ministry of Munitions in 1917, end quote, the following is read, quote, The number of persons engaged in the production of munitions in October 1917 was 2,022,000 men and 704,000 women, as compared with 1,921,000 men and 535,000 women in January. They have thus been increased during the past six months at the rate of 11,000 men and 19,000 women per month. These numbers include those employed in government and in private establishments, in the principal munition industries, chemical and explosive trades, engineering and munition plants, furnaces and foundries, in shipbuilding and in mining, other than coal mining. The total represents approximately two-thirds of the total labor occupied on government work in industry. The preceding official statistics prove most conclusively that actually, and ever since the beginning of the third year of the war, more than twelve millions of men and women, more than the fourth of the total population of the United Kingdom, have either been in the armed forces of the British Crown, Navy and Army, or in the shipbuilding yards, in munitions factories, in transportation on land and sea, in the medical service, in the air service, etc., employed for the success of the cause of the Allies. THE FINANCIAL EFFORT OF GREAT BRITAIN the gigantic military effort of Great Britain in all the branches of its wonderfully developed organization, as above illustrated, was only rendered possible by a corresponding financial contribution. During the financial year preceding the outbreak of the war, the total expenditure of the government of Great Britain was $987,464,845. The hostilities have imposed upon the United Kingdom vast expenditures. Quote, for that period, again quoting the War Cabinet report, from the 1st April 1917 to the 1st December 1917, the total exchequer issues for expenditure, including consolidated fund service and supply services, were £1,799,223,000, or $8,796,115,000, representing a daily average for that period of £7,344,000, or $36,720,000. At this rate of expenditure, the total for the year equals at least $13,500,000,000. But the financial charges entailed by the war being constantly on the increase, they can be calculated at a daily average of no less than $40,000,000 until the close of the conflict. England has not only incurred very heavy financial obligations, met both by an enormously increased taxation and the issue of large national loans to pay the cost of her own war expenditure, but she has also generously helped her friends whose financial resources were not so abundant as her own. 
to the first december nineteen seventeen she had made advances to the allies amounting to no less than five billion nine hundred and thirty million dollars in addition to this large amount the advances she had made to the dominions for the same period summed up eight hundred and seventy five million dollars achievements of dominion colonial and indian troops under the above title the war cabinet report concludes a general review of the past year's effort by paying high tribute to the value of the services rendered by the whole british colonial empire in the following elogious terms Quote, in the above sketch of military operations during the past year it has not been possible to distinguish between the particular services rendered by the various nations and nationalities of the empire but it must not be forgotten that during the war the forces of the crown have become welded into a true imperial army representative of every part of the world-wide british commonwealth and a brief note may be included as to the special services of the various overseas forces the share of the australian new zealand canadian south african and newfoundland contingents in the successes of the nineteen seventeen campaign are well known the capture of vimy ridge in april the prolonged and bitter fighting around lens during the whole summer and autumn and the capture of passchendaele were carried out by the canadian corps which has thus proved itself as excellent in offensive as its splendid defence of ypres in nineteen fifteen had shown it to be in defensive fighting the new zealand and australian contingents have corresponding achievements to their credit in their share of the battle of messines and in the long-sustained and bitterly contested fights in the ypres salient from july to november the south african brigade sustained the brilliant reputation which it won last year at delville wood by the devoted services it rendered on the battlefields of arras and ypres finally the newfoundland regiment took a glorious and costly part in the same two battles the troops of all the dominions have shown themselves throughout the campaign of nineteen seventeen to have maintained the historic standards of the british army and have been worthy rivals of the united kingdom troops in every military effort and achievement this testimony to the services rendered by the dominions would not be complete without some reference to the part played by south africa in german east africa where her troops have borne under the brilliant leadership of general von deventer a conspicuous share in a peculiarly arduous campaign the smaller colonies and protectorates have naturally been unable to play so great and conspicuous a part in the world war but in their own spheres they have contributed their full share to the military effort of the empire labor and fighting troops were freely drawn upon for the mesopotamian and east african theatres west africa british east africa uganda nyazaland and rhodesia have all sent contingents to fight in german east africa sixteen thousand men from the west indies have been sent across the atlantic and labor corps from the eastern colonies have been sent to the mesopotamian and east african fronts and despite unfavorable conditions to the western theatre a large number of individuals from overseas possessions such as the malay states and hong kong have also joined the imperial forces finally india's contribution both in manpower material and money has steadily increased throughout the year india has taken a very important share in the victorious campaign in mesopotamia the great majority of the troops in this theatre of war are indian they have fully sustained the high reputation of the indian army for gallantry and endurance india has been responsible for much of the supply medical and transportation system by water and on land indian forces have also rendered conspicuous service in france egypt and east africa the question of the supply of officers especially medical officers has been solved commissions have been granted to indians and a voluntary indian defence force is now being organized and trained 
special mention should be made of the loyal and effective assistance of the Indian ruling princes and chiefs, from the smallest to the greatest. End quote. The Indian government has moreover generously contributed five hundred million dollars towards the cost of the war. The foregoing quotations of official figures, of facts undeniable, of achievements really most extraordinary, constitute the unanswerable refutation, complete and crushing, of the nationalist charge that England, while not doing her own duty with regard to the war, was using undue influence to coerce the British colonies to participate in the conflict far beyond the fair proportionate effort to be expected on their part, that an illegitimate pressure of Great Britain's government on her colonies was being practised, as insidiously alleged, to promote her imperialist ambition of the world's ascendancy. Unfortunately, those false and most unjust notions had taken deeper root in many minds, even in some who should have been much above such an unfair misconception than was at first supposed. Hence the importance of setting the matter right, and the necessity of proving that England's war achievements, in every branch of the military service, were far exceeding what had at first been expected of her, and was ever considered possible. British pluck and manliness were equal to the direst emergency that ever called them forth. Patriotism, courage, determination, perseverance, rising superior to any increased difficulties, have truly worked miracles of manly efforts and self-sacrifices inspired by the noble cause which brought Great Britain in the world's struggle. End of chapter 13